This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on July 30th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Very few Amish kids have asthma. The Amish tend to live on these single-family farms and use traditional farming practices. Amish kids tend to spend a lot of time around livestock. That's Emily Anthes. She was on the podcast back in 2013 to talk about her biotech book, Frankenstein's Cat. Her new book is The Great Indoors, the surprising science of how buildings shape our behavior, health, and happiness. We'll also listen to a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca about easier and more widely available cancer biopsies. But first, Emily Anthes. I called her at home in Brooklyn. So you'll also hear some of the authentic sounds of the streets of New York's most populous borough. What are you looking at? Here's Emily Anthes. Now, you had no idea when you started on this project that we would be receiving the book in a time when we'd be spending a lot of our a lot of our time inside our own houses. No. People have asked me what I'm planning to write about next so they can be prepared for whatever is coming down the pike uh, three or four years from now. So what what did you have in mind to write about next? <laughs> That's a good question. I I hadn't quite decided. I'm uh, thinking maybe back to animals, which is sort of the, the focus of my first book, but uh, I haven't quite narrowed it down yet. Right. The first book being Frankenstein's Cat. Exactly. Um, so what is uh, the most interesting to you thing that you discovered while doing the research for this book? Well, I think I sort of have a soft spot for the research on the indoor microbiome and um, sort of the research, the surveys that have been done of the dust inside our homes and all of the microbial life that they contain. Um, And in terms of interesting facts, I was just blown away by the diversity and the size of what scientists were finding, you know, across a thousand homes in the U.S., a hundred thousand different species of microbes that we're finding traces of in our home and 60,000 different species of, of fungi. And that just boggles my mind. Um, hitting a bit closer to home, I guess, literally speaking, I also had the DNA in my own shower head sequenced. And some of the, the creatures that turned up there blew my mind a bit. Um, There's one that I I think about a lot that scientists don't know much about called RB41. Um, And one of the few things we do know about it is that it's also turned up in dog noses and in Paleolithic cave paintings. And so just the idea that a microbe that's in both of those places is also in in the shower head of my Brooklyn apartment is fascinating and something I still think about. Yeah, that was the part of the book. I mean, the the whole book is really interesting and and very well written and fun to read. But the part of the it's the same part of the book that really grabbed me is uh, all about what's going on, you know, out of our range of vision inside our own homes. I mean, you can uh, you can tell uh, what room an individual in a family spends their the most of their time in in a house based on the microbial populations that you find there. Yeah, that we each have our own sort of unique microbiomes and in some ways they're as distinct as fingerprints and scientists can sort of 
track our paths and our activity patterns through our homes by analyzing the microbes in each room. So houses with more women in them have bacteria in the houses associated with the vaginal microbiome. Houses with more men have more bacteria associated with the skin and the armpits. What what does that say about us? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. Um, I asked the researchers about that, and we don't quite know the answer. I mean, one possible explanation is that it's just due to differences in skin biology. So there's some research to suggest that um, men are sort of shedding their skin and their skin microbes at a rate that's um, higher than women do. Um, but, you know, the other possible takeaway is that houses with a lot of men in it uh, maybe smell more like armpits than houses with, with a lot of women in it. So that might also be a fair interpretation. There, you have a little item. In, it's, a, it's like two sentences in a footnote. Uh, you quote Rob Dunn, who you, whose research you discuss at length, who, who did a lot of the surveys of what's in people's homes. And uh, he said, quote, chimp nests are all environmental microbes. You can't tell a chimp has ever been there. That's the end of the quote. Well, you can't tell that the chimp's been there by the by the microbes anyway. Right, there's, right. there's probably a lot of other telltale signs that a chimp has been there. So what exactly does that mean? Well, he mentioned this as an example of, you know, one extreme example of what aspects of the built environment affect the microbes that we find there. And basically, his point is that you can think of our buildings or our homes as sort of a gradient of how many microbes we let in from the outdoors. So an environment that is extremely sealed off from the outdoor world, so like a newly built, eco-friendly, tightly sealed family home, or even more extreme, if you think of a place like the ISS, the International Space Station, because almost no microbes are getting in from outdoors, they are just dominated by human-associated microbes. So the main microbes you find there are things that we are shedding from our own bodies. But if you start to move into homes that are more open to the outdoors, um, and there have been some studies of, you know, jungle huts or village homes that don't have tightly sealed windows or, you know, one extreme being chimp nests, then they're letting in a lot of natural microbes from soil and water and trees. And those microbes tend to dominate as opposed to things that are originating from our own bodies. And so you can sort of think of the possibilities as ranging from one extreme of chimp nests to the other extreme of the ISS. It's an amazing study that you talk about, that 2016 Amazon Basin study, Mm -hmm. which really demonstrates this across a a gradient, like you said, of, uh, of four different types of environments. And it's quite clear the uh, the differences among them. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, this is what I was sort of um, vaguely referencing uh, a minute ago, but researchers studied four different communities uh, in the Amazon River Basin, um, a remote jungle, a rural village, a Peruvian town, and then sort of a, an extremely urban and developed Brazilian city. 
And each of those four locations had different types of homes. Um, so in the, the jungle village had the homes that were sort of most open to the outdoors. Um, people there lived in these big thatched huts and the huts tend to be made of wood and reeds and they're completely open. Like they don't even have walls. They have dirt floors and then they're just open to the air. And then in the rural village, you have homes that do have some external walls, but they tend to still be made of natural materials like wood and, and thatch. Um, and they don't have interior plumbing or a lot of sort of technological innovation and materials happening indoors. And the researchers found that in both of these environments, these homes really had a large mix of microbes that came from the outdoors, um, you know, environmental bacteria, species that are associated with soil, with water, with insects. Um, but in the other two locations, it was the opposite. So those kinds of homes in the city and the town um, were made of sort of more what you might think of as modern construction materials like brick and tin and cement. And they had sturdy walls that separated the indoor space from the outdoor space. And they were much less rich in environmental bacteria and were instead dominated by bacteria from the residents themselves that they were shedding into their home. So really here you see the difference in how bacterial communities reflect sort of the amount of the outdoor world that you're allowing into your home. So that's fascinating in its own right, but what's the effect on our human bodies? Yeah, well, so the short answer is it's not quite clear yet. Um, there's still a lot of questions uh, to be answered, but there is good reason to think that we actually don't want to shut ourselves off from the rich assortment of microbes that live in the outdoor world, that really a healthy home is one that has a wide diversity of microbial life and has those soil and water and insect-associated microbes. So uh, there have been some interesting studies showing that, you know, kids that grow up with dogs or in other homes that sort of have have this rich assortment of, of microbes that they are less likely to develop things like asthma or autoimmune disease. And the thinking is that that's because, you know, we evolved in a world in which we were exposed to lots of different types of microbial life and that these exposures really help train our immune systems. Um, and if you don't get exposed to all those microbes when your immune system is developing, you might be more likely to sort of overreact to allergens or, or other threats later. So there are a variety of studies that sort of approach that question from different angles, but all sort of seem to be converging on the conclusion that allowing these environmental microbes into your home and into your space may be good for you. Now, cats don't seem to have the same effect that dogs do. Dogs have a huge impact on the home's microbiome, so much so that researchers, you know, by taking a sample of the dust in your home, they can predict with fairly high accuracy whether there's a dog around or not. Um, and that's because they tend to track in all sorts of different microbes from outside. And then there are, of course, microbes associated with their own bodies Cats do also change a home's microbiome, um, but slightly less so. Um, 
And that may be because cats are just smaller, so they're not introducing as many new microbes. It could also be because a lot of cats are indoor cats, so they're not having this sort of tracking in of, of microbes back and forth um, across the threshold. You go into this amazing study of the Hutterites and the Amish, mm-hmm. and I, I just think that's so fascinating because there you're really looking at two similar kinds of communities rather than the Amish versus the rest of us. Mm-hmm. But the Hutterites and the Amish share kind of a genetic ancestry and they're both farming communities. So let, let's talk about what those studies found. Absolutely. So this is one of the studies that um, sort of helps get us closer to an answer about what these microbial exposures do. Um, and it's a really smart, sort of ingenious study. Um, as you mentioned, the Amish and the Hutterites have a lot in common. They are sort of American farming communities that tend to live in sort of Midwest or central areas of the country. They tend to have large families. They have this Central European ancestry. Um, But one difference that intrigued researchers is that very few Amish kids have asthma, uh, just like 5% or so, whereas a lot more Hutterite kids, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of them, have asthma. And the communities also have different farming customs. They're both farming communities, but the Amish tend to live on these single family farms and use traditional farming practices, um, you know, horse drawn plows and things like that. And Amish kids tend to spend a lot of time around livestock. They play in family barns, which are typically, you know, right outside the homes. Uh, the Hutterites, on the other hand, uh, they use industrial farming technology and they live together on big industrial farms with high-tech equipment. Um, the barns and the livestock are typically positioned farther away from the homes. And because they're full of you know, dangerous equipment, kids don't tend to play in, in the barns. Um, they have less contact overall with livestock. And so researchers have found that these differences seem to influence children's exposure to microbes and the microbes that are in their homes. So house dust from Amish homes, and again, these are the homes that tend to be located close to barns and livestock, tend to have higher levels of bacteria, more diverse bacteria than the dust from Hutterite homes, which are more isolated from livestock and barns. And that seems to have a real impact on the children's exposures to microbes and the development of their immune systems. So I might get, I guess, a bit technical here for a second, but I'll try to explain all the terms. Um, So Amish kids, at least in this one study, researchers found had more neutrophils. Um, These are white blood cells that help the body fight off infection. And fewer of the blood cells that play a really big role in allergic reactions. And so when you put all those pieces together, I mean, this is still, it's not quite a causative study. It's correlative. But the pieces seem to suggest that because Amish kids are exposed to the microbes that are associated with livestock, they develop these sort of healthier immune systems. More with Emily Anthes coming up, but first, a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca. 
There's a small subset of lung cancer patients whose disease appears before they're 40 years old and who have no clear risk factors associated with the disease. In the Young Lung Cancer Study, we asked the question whether young patients with lung cancer are different, and we were able to offer them a test, genetic testing of their tumor, to get them to the best treatments and help them tell a story about how they're different. That's Jeff Oxnard. He and his colleague Barbara Gitlitz were awarded the Catalyst for Precision Medicine Award for their work with the Genomics of Young Lung Cancer Study at the 2019 Cancer Community Award sponsored by AstraZeneca. The Precision Medicine Award celebrates those who enhance the ability to provide the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. The Genomics of Young Lung Cancer Study has already made significant advances into understanding the genetics of this group and into advancing treatments. The C2 Awards are part of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program, which brings together the community that is working to drive meaningful change in cancer care. As we head into this year's awards, Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the awards, is taking a look back to visit with last year's winners and hear what's been happening since we first met them. What that study has done has motivated us to do an even better job in delivering precision cancer medicine for cancer patients everywhere. And that means making tumor testing, genetic testing of the cancer easier. And so it's motivated us to move forward, zooming in on a new technology called liquid biopsies. Can we use blood tests to offer precision cancer care to lung cancer patients everywhere? And the answer is yes. You call liquid biopsies a new technology, but of course what you're referring to is that you can actually use liquid biopsies as a tool now, and you couldn't in the past. How has this technology changed recently to make it a more effective tool for you and your colleagues? I think that the rapid improvement in these technologies has finally made tumor genetic testing really an availability for every cancer patient in a way that it didn't used to be. And so we've created a clinical trial where we offer on study a liquid biopsy to any patient in the United States with ALK resistance, with progressive lung cancer, with an ALK mutation, so that they can get this blood test, get a result that goes back to the patient and to their doctor and helps them to pick the next step. We are trying to make this precision tool more widely available to patients across the country. So for those who aren't familiar with it, ALK resistance refers to the genetics of a subset of lung cancer tumors. This type of tumor is more common in the group of younger non-smokers that you're studying, and identifying this tumor genotype can allow these patients to access therapies tailored to their particular tumor. So another question about the study, how has the current COVID-19 crisis affected your research? Importantly, the ongoing COVID pandemic has made it harder for some patients to get access to these precision tools. And what's terrific about liquid biopsies is they remain available. And these remote participation studies are ongoing now. Even regardless, during the pandemic, patients can get their blood tests and can get these results back to try to help them figure out the next step in their cancer journey. Amazing. And as we mentioned, it's your work in precision medicine with this group that led to the C2 award. What impact did winning the award have on the work of you and your colleagues? It is tremendously heartening to have our hard work acknowledged like this. I think people think that this should be easy. And getting an award like this, getting recognition that precision cancer medicine needs a catalyst out there to make it easier for patients and for doctors uh, motivates us to do even better and motivates us to lower the boundaries between patients and access to precision medicine. After your experience as a winner, you decided to stay involved and participate as a judge. Why did you decide to judge this year's nominees? It is so heartening to see what people across the country are doing to take care of cancer patients. I mean, especially right now in the thick of this pandemic, I worry that our cancer patients 
are in particular struggling and having a harder time getting cancer care. And to see that there are members of the community everywhere investing, giving back, and taking care of cancer patients really gives me hope about uh, the progress ahead. I think that's the most important point people need to know about the battle against cancer. We are making such progress. Uh, We have better and better outcomes. We have better and better tools every year. And that leads to more survivors and more people giving back to take care of the cancer patients who are struggling all around us to help them do better with their disease. What does an award like this mean? Why is it important to celebrate the heroes and the individual stories and to come together as a community? Fighting a disease like cancer is exhausting. And by bringing together all of these passionate individuals, what we get to see is the energy everywhere. And that energy uh, breeds motivation and breeds even greater energy to go back and, and take the next step. The C2 Cancer Community Awards really bring together that, that group of energized cancer researchers to learn from each other and to help take the next step together. This podcast was made possible through the support of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program. Jeffrey Oxnard is a thoracic oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Now more with Emily Anthes, author of The Great Indoors. When people are designing buildings now, um, there are such simple ways to encourage exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, talk about what some of the building designers have done that really have um, measurable effects and that are just so simple and obvious. Yeah, well, so um, this is a, a field of design that's come to be known as active design. And the idea is really, you know, not to, you know, force people to exercise or to constantly be hitting them over the head with messages to exercise, but to design environments in ways that sort of make it easier and more appealing to move as just part of your everyday routine. And the biggest and most sort of obvious example and room for improvement involves stairs and sort of as a corollary elevators. So if you think about like any office building or high rise you've gone into, you probably walk into this lobby that's gleaming and maybe it's marble. And then you have this sort of bright bank of elevators with, you know, silver shining doors. And it's just, you can't miss it. You walk in and it's clear that the default choice is to take the elevator And if you can find the stairs at all, you know, they're often hidden behind a heavy fire door that you can barely open. The stairs aren't, you know, there's no nice touches on it. It's just, you know, concrete and maybe poorly lit, smells kind of weird. And you can imagine that those design choices, they make taking the elevator the default behavior. They don't exactly reward you or entice you to take the stairs. But just some subtle changes in in how you design those spaces can encourage people to take the stairs. So, you know, putting stairs front and center so they're the first thing you see, making sure staircases are wide, that they're well lit, that they are um, architecturally distinct. So if you can make them sort of an interesting feature in a lobby so it's not just a utilitarian thing, but maybe it's this grand inviting staircase that takes you up to the second floor. Um, Even things like hanging art or playing music in stairwells, if you have to have sort of a hidden stairwell, can make taking the stairs more appealing. And there are now sort of 
several longitudinal studies that show that even those small changes, you know, taking a few extra flights of stairs a day can really have a lasting impact on things like our cardiovascular health. So there are real dividends there. And one study found weight loss among uh, people who were all of a sudden in an, an environment where taking the stairs was more appealing. Yeah. So there was a, a hospital that did sort of a several month stair climbing campaign. And, you know, they, they also used uh, what are sometimes known as stair prompts. So, you know, little signs by the elevators and the stairs, just sort of encouraging people to take the stairs. And that's a real sort of low cost, low investment intervention, but it increased stair climbing significantly over the course of of this study and led to weight loss and measurable improvements in, in cardiovascular fitness. Speaking of hospitals, you've you've got a whole chapter on hospitals. Mm-hmm. And hospitals, you know, as it's often been said, a hospital is no place for a sick person. <laughs> right. What are people thinking about in terms of hospitals? Well, these days especially, there's a lot of thought about how to design hospitals that sort of limit the transmission of infectious disease. Um, obviously, COVID-19 is the impetus for that, but that was something that designers and um, hospital administrators were thinking of even before that, you know, with the rise of things like antibiotic resistant um, superbugs, you know, hospital infections are a real danger to patients. So there's been a lot of thought put into that area specifically. Um, And it turns out that one of the best ways to reduce infection and to boost patient outcomes is to give every patient their own room. Um, That's something that's sort of sometimes thought of as a luxury, like if you can afford it or if you go to a really nice hospital, you might get your own room. But there's a real clinical reason for that. Um, Patients are less likely to transmit infections or or get infections from others. Single rooms are quieter, which can help healing. Um, There's some evidence to suggest that they might even foster better communication between doctors and patients. So you know, if you're in a shared room or just hidden behind a curtain, patients seem to be less likely to be completely forthcoming in their medical histories or consent to invasive exams. So there are a lot of uh, real benefits of, of single patient rooms. That's one big lesson uh, from the research. Again, something that seems simple and obvious, but, um, you know, people are probably worrying about the bottom line and two people in a room might appear cheaper but maybe in the long run, it isn't cheaper. There's a really interesting example of researchers who have actually done that calculation, and they created something called the Fable Hospital. And so that incorporated a lot of different features that research has shown can be good for patients and patient outcomes. So that's single patient rooms, but there are a bunch of other design interventions as well. So like providing patients with views of nature seems to reduce pain and stress and anxiety and even speed healing that those patients are are discharged from the hospital sooner. Um, Daylight has some similar effects. Reducing noise has benefits for patients. And so they created this imaginary hospital where they put all of those features together in one place. And they found that Adding those features did add a bit to the cost of constructing the hospital, but that within the first year of operation that it already paid for itself because patients are using less painkillers, 
Um, staff are making less mistakes. There are fewer patient falls. You're having better staff retention because those features also make it a more pleasant place to work. So there is some upfront cost to some of these solutions, but there's also evidence to suggest that they more than pay for themselves over the building's lifespan. That's really, really interesting. Um, you have a, a mention in the book. This was this really kind of uh, blew me away. The idea of buoyancy blocks for uh, homes in areas that tend to flood. I mean, we've all seen beach houses that are on um, stilts, sort of. I shouldn't say we've all seen them, but because if you live in Kansas, you might not have seen it. But if you, you know, you see it on TV too. So these houses are built, uh, there's no foundation really. They're just, uh, they're on stilts, yeah. The uh, the house is, you know, the, the, the lowest floor of the house is already 10 feet off the ground or whatever. And so if the area gets flooded, you're above the flood, unless it's a giant tsunami, but then you got other problems. So you talk about these buoyancy blocks that you could even retrofit houses with to um, to deal with rather than trying to keep the flood from coming in, you deal with the flood with these with this technology. Yeah. So the sort of houses on stilts model um, is sometimes sort of the technical term for that is static elevation. But this other approach that I write about um, is sometimes called amphibious architecture or buoyant foundations. And the idea is that the house is not on stilts. It normally just sort of rests on the ground uh, like a normal house, but that under the foundation, you have some sort of buoyancy element attached. And that can be anything from, you know, styrofoam blocks to empty water bottles, something that makes the house buoyant. And when flood waters rise or if a flood happens, essentially the water lifts the house. So the house remains resting on the surface of the water. And no matter how high the floodwaters get, the house rises with the water. Um, I should also mention that the house is attached to these sort of guidance poles. So you might have like poles or columns that are sunk into the ground around the house and you attach the foundation to them. So as the house rises, it's tied to these poles. It's not at risk of, you know, floating away down the street. It's not a houseboat. Right. It is not. But actually, that is sort of the inspiration for it, is that these houses act sort of as the hull of a boat or a pontoon raft. So they're buoyant and they rise to the surface of the floodwaters. And then as the waters recede, they sort of slowly lower themselves back down to the same spot they were sitting before. And you spoke to people who live in houses with this technology. Yeah. So this was developed by... Uh, a researcher, an architect, an engineer, but she was inspired by a community in Louisiana that had essentially sort of developed this idea on their own um, and sort of jury-rigged their own system for this, which is, it's very close to the system she designed. She just refined it a little bit, but, you know, they have these houses near the Mississippi River, which floods every spring, and so they have, you know, put these foam blocks under their houses and sunk these wooden poles into the ground and created sort of their own amphibious houses. And um, one of the men quoted in the book does sort of ride out the floods in his home. <laughs> that's not what researchers recommend, but uh, that's what he likes to do. And he says it's been working great. I'm just thinking, I wonder if 
you know, ancient Egyptians living in the Nile floodplain came up with something like this thousands of years ago, and, and we just don't know about it, and we've recapitulated it. Yeah, well, so there are, and that's an important point, is that, you know, this is sort of the quote-unquote modern version developed recently by researchers, but um, they have taken inspiration from, you know, there are lots of communities that live in flood-prone areas that, you know, maybe don't necessarily have these sorts of amphibious systems, but have developed fairly sophisticated floating homes and other strategies and solutions for living in sort of water-logged places. Um, and so that general idea is not entirely novel, but they're just sort of adapting it for modern American homes. You have in the book a very short prescription for the, going back to the home microbiome. Um, so this was partly inspired by... Um, you know, there's a lot of interest in the microbiome right now in general and probiotics, and a lot of that is not scientifically supported. That, of course, hasn't stopped companies from marketing, and you can even go on Amazon and buy these, like, probiotic sprays that are designed to spray, like, good bacteria around your home, and none of that really has solid scientific evidence yet. But there are some things we can do to encourage a healthy home microbiome. Um, that are fairly simple. And so um, what I wrote is, for the time being, the best way to foster a healthy home microbiome requires no fancy products or technology. Keep things dry, forego cleansers, textiles, and materials that contain added antimicrobials, open a window, get a dog, or if you can swing it, a cow. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet. Whenever a new item hits the website, our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.